Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part three, the conclusion in our short mini series entitled In Christ Alone, Salvation in a Pluralistic World. If you haven't listened to part one and part two already, I really encourage you to go back and to do that first. And this series is a bit different from the Problem of Evil series. Those of you that went through that series, you know that was a very long extended series where my goal was first to just be like an impartial tour guide leading you through the various options, the various positions that people have had, the attempts at solving or giving good answers to the problem of evil throughout Christian theological and philosophical history. I'm not necessarily doing that with this series. This series, I'm presenting to you more of a a case for a particular position that I believe to be true when it comes to questions about salvation, religious pluralism, So it's a little bit different, which might mean that some of you might come away with more objections because, again, I'm presenting to you more of a position and it's a case, an argument, if you will, for a particular way of reading the scriptures, thinking about salvation. So there might be more room for disagreement, and that's just fine. One of the best places that you could express that disagreement or a follow-up question is in our discussion forum for this episode that happens on the Deep Talks Patreon page. At the end of this episode, I'll give you more information about what that's all about, how you can get connected there. So stay tuned to the end of today's episode to find out more about how to get involved in that discussion forum and other places where we can have dialogue about this stuff. Today's episode and all of our episodes are made possible without advertisement because of the generous support of listeners just like you. Thank you for your support. If you're considering becoming a supporter of this podcast and the work that I'm doing, you can stay tuned at the end of the episode, along with finding out about the discussion forum and all these other great avenues, you can find out about how you can support this podcast on Patreon. Let's say you went through the last episode, part two in this series, and you found my argument from scripture to be pretty compelling. But yet you made it to the end of it and you went, okay, why haven't I heard this before? Now, granted, I imagine many of you have. I know that there are people in our Deep Talks Patreon community. We've had some discussion about this in our monthly Zoom uh, group hangouts. And many people are familiar with this way of reading the scripture. But I imagine many of you gone, like I did years ago, said, why have I never heard this before? And oftentimes when we hear something new, like a new way of reading the scriptures, something that's different, our initial response is suspicion. And that's actually a good response. I actually want to affirm that as a good response. We should actually start by going, okay, let's weigh this thing out. It's new, right? If it's new to me, is it brand new? And if it's brand new, why hasn't anybody before this time in church history thought of this before, you know, that should raise some red flags. We do this with every discipline. We always test the new theory up against the old theory, and we make sure that before we displace the old theory that there's pretty good evidence and reason for us to displace that old theory. Whether this is in theology, whether it's in science, I mean, Einstein was not wild about quantum theory. And, uh, you know, I bet if Newton was still alive, he wouldn't have been exactly 
wild about maybe he would have but uh maybe he would have been a little bit like yeah i don't know how i feel about this einstein guy coming around and displacing many of the things that i i held to as true in classical physics and that's just fine we should actually test these new ideas we should test new theories and to hold them uh, up to the light to give them plenty of scrutiny and to say all right if this is going to be true we're going to have to really stress test this thing I actually think that's a really good practice. The thing I want to share with you guys today is that the way that I read the scriptures in last week's episode and highlighted this overarching theme that I see in the biblical narrative, the reason to have hope that it is in Christ alone that we are saved and that all peoples everywhere have access to this Christ, the reason why I hold to that and the reason why I shared it with you isn't because it was just some new theory that I came up with. It was actually because I found people in the church long before I ever lived, (laughs) long before any of us were ever born, who held to this view. In fact, from the very beginning, Christians held to this sort of reading of the scripture and understanding of salvation. And I want to take you through some of church history, take you back to the very beginning to show you that from the very get-go, there were plenty of Christians who held to this Christocentric, inclusivist position, and there are certainly reasons why that position fell out of fashion. The early church fathers are an interesting case study in this regard, because the early fathers were both against other religious beliefs and practices that they thought were antithetical to the scriptures, and yet simultaneously affirmed that individuals outside of the Christian religion could experience salvation in Christ. Valimati Karkanian over at Fuller describes this in his book that we've referred to several times, quote, In general, the fathers were extremely skeptical of and often hostile to mystery religions, pagan mythologies, and many pagan rituals. Astrology as a means of gaining secret knowledge so prevalent among mystery religions and elsewhere was a constant target of criticism. The fathers also opposed those Eastern cults, such as Manichaeism, that found gateways to the West in the early centuries. Even with all of these qualifications, however, a significant group of the first theologians and pastors of the church interpreted the ambiguous biblical data concerning other religions in a way that led them to a rather accepting position, end quote. Let's go through some of these together, okay? Uh, Some of these church fathers you may be familiar with from if you've ever taken a church history course or if you've gone through my Problem of Evil series. Let's start with Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr might be the best uh, example of someone laying out a theological and philosophical framework for how it can be that those outside an explicit knowledge or cognitive belief in the Christian narrative of Jesus might still come to know Christ and participate in his salvific covenant that he extends. Justin Martyr argued for something called the seeds of the Logos being at work in other religions, philosophies, and worldviews. To understand Justin's view, this seeds of the Logos view, we need to understand a bit about this sort of Logos theology, philosophy. Where did that term come from? What is the Logos? Well, we are probably, if you've spent any time in church or any familiarity with theology, you know that term, Logos, the Greek term, 
from the Gospel of John, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word there in Greek, the Word, the Word, <laughs> was Logos. Now, the Logos, again, is best known in Christian theology as the pre-incarnate Word of God mentioned in John 1. But it was also, before that was ever part of the Christian scriptures, the Logos was a philosophical idea in the Greek world. It, it was a, a, an idea in Greek philosophy long before John appropriated it as a description of the eternal pre-existent Son of God. The, for the Stoics, for example, the Stoics may have been the originators of the, the Logos concept, though we also see it in other forms of Platonic thought, of course, later in Neoplatonism, sometimes under different words like the nous, N-O-U-S, but the Stoics believed that the Logos was the very reason of the universe. It was the principle that kept the cosmos functioning rationally. The very reason why the universe is rational and intelligible was due to the Logos. It's this principle that we also see, not just in the Stoics, not just in versions of Platonic thought, but even among the Jewish philosopher, a Jewish philosopher who tried to integrate um, traditional uh, Hebraic thought and Hellenized philosophy, that was Philo of Alexandria. Philo of Alexandria wrote in the first century, and he ra rather uniquely adopted or adapted this, this concept of the Logos from Greek philosophy, from the Stoics, and he applied it to his own Jewish theology. And he used this term Logos to describe a conceptual high intermediary, the highest intermediary, intermediary being. Um, this was a concept that you could actually see in Second Temple um, Jewish literature, this, this idea that there was some sort of mediating being or agent between the perfectly holy God and the contingent creation. And so for Philo of Alexandria, the Logos was this highest intermediary being that provided a, a medium for imperfect matter to interact and be connected to perfect form. So again, you have to understand a bit about Platonic philosophy. Again, the one is perfect. Um, and as we descend and we move further away from the one, we have a degradation of perfection. We get further away from the perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty. So there had to be a way for imperfect material beings to be able to be connected to the one. And you see this idea again in Greek thought. It's interesting, Philo of Alexandria supposes that there was a intermediary being who interacts in this way to connect the imperfect matter to the perfect form. For Philo, again, this perfect form wasn't just the kind of general Greek uh, conception of the one or, you know, or God, but it was the perfect, inapproachable, holy God of the Old Testament. Philo described the logos of the living God as, quote, the bond of everything, holding all things together and binding all the parts and preventing them from being dissolved and separated. 
With all the available knowledge we have on Philo, we can say with a high degree of certainty that Philo never met Jesus of Nazareth and probably, I mean, probably didn't even know of his existence living in Alexandria. Whether directly or indirectly, John agrees with much of Philo's logos, philosophy, and theology, but John does something even more unique. John identifies Jesus as the logos made flesh. John says of the Logos, again, identified as Jesus in John 1, that it was, quote, through him that all things were made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, verses 3 through 5. So Christ was the true light that gives light to everyone, but the world didn't recognize him. And, as John later goes on to say, his own, which would be Israel, did not receive him. So what Justin Martyr comes along and does is he takes John and rightly understands that what John is arguing in his gospel is that the Logos is the pre-incarnate Christ, that Christ is the Logos. He is that which holds all things together, the bond that unites um, the, the we could say the phenomenological world and the noumenal world, the bond that unites uh, the, the perfect, inapproachable, holy God, that which is beyond all categorization, that which is beyond all imperfection and unites it to that which, like humans, have uh, imperfection, that we have sin. And so it is this, this, this logos which acts as the mediary, not only in a salvific sense, but actually even in an ontological sense. This is the very reason and rationality of the universe, that it's intelligible, that God becomes knowable at all. Again, not just, we're not just thinking about salvation and atonement, but even that God and his creation could be knowable in the light of what we might say is general revelation is still Christ. I, Justin rightly understands that this is John's argument. Though that Jesus was born at a definitive moment in history, that, that the Son of God, the Logos, has always existed, right? This is what makes him the only begotten Son of God, the one who is one with the Father. This is why we deem him Christ as uh, the, the, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity, Justin rightly argues that this Logos has always existed and has always been active in the world. So throughout history, Justin believes that the God, God's been planting these seeds of the Logos, the illuminations of God's divine reason, and, and those who have participated in the divine reason, they they have used their reason with the light available to them. They have been accessing salvific glimpses of God in Christ. So anywhere, at any point in history, whether it was Abraham, and this helps us make so much sense of things like the, Hebrew, uh, the, the Hebrews Hall of Fame for faith, right? It's like, how is Abraham a model for faith in Christ when Christ wasn't born yet? Well, it's because of the Logos, because Christ is the incarnation of the Logos. He is the Word made flesh. And so when Abraham was responding to the light that he had, even though he didn't know the name Jesus, 
he was responding positively to Christ. Listen to what Justin Martyr has to say. This is recorded in his uh, well-known first apology. Justin Martyr writes this. We have been taught, quote, we have been taught that Christ is the firstborn of God, and we have declared that he is the word of whom every race of men were partaken, and those who lived reasonably are Christians, even though they have been thought atheists. So for Justin, all truth was Christ's truth, and those who lived in accordance with the truth Though they may have taken a different epistemological path, though they possibly even named it something different in that moment, maybe they didn't see it clearly for who Christ truly is, were still on a destination to Christ insofar as they were in the truth. Now, like some of the disparaging way many modern evangelicals speak of philosophy as an enemy to the revelation of Scripture would just be completely, utterly dismissed by Justin as unbiblical. Justin Martyr believed that, quote, the purpose of the Christian mission was to make explicit what was implicit in the world. That's from uh, Veli Mati Karkanian. There is no truth that doesn't come from Christ. There is no beauty that doesn't find its source in Christ. There is no goodness that doesn't find its source in Christ. All of it comes from him. He is the fount of it all. So where we participate with truth, we participate with Christ's activity. Where we participate with beauty, we participate with Christ's activity. And where we participate with goodness, we participate with Christ's activity. So then the mission of the church, the vocational call of the separated and particular people of God, those called to that particular vocation to be a light unto the world? Why are we to be a light to the nations? What do we mean by a light to the nations? What does the light do? It illumines what's dark. So what we get to do is we get to make explicit what was maybe just implicit in a different cultural context. Justin explained this, explains this well in his second apology, quote, All the right principles that philosophers and lawgivers have discovered and expressed, they owe to whatever of the word, with a capital W there, they have found and contemplated in part. The reason why they have contradicted each other is that they have not known the entire word, which is Christ. End quote. Justin Martyr is very positive about the redemptive value of things like Greek philosophy, for example. He's living in this Greco-Roman world. He sees the, the goodness of what God has done in that culture. Was it flawed? Yes. Was some of the philosophy flawed? Yes. The reason why it was flawed is because they didn't know the entire word, which is Christ. But that doesn't mean that they didn't participate in some glimpse of the word to Justin Martyr. Again, any right thing that philosophers, lawgivers, you know, we would have added, you know, this, this would be anachronistic. We could say scientists, mathematicians, um, poets, artists, you name it. Anything right that they have discovered, they owe to whatever glimpse of the word that, was, that they found or contemplated in, at least in whatever part that they were able to see it. 
I mean, guys, the very fact that John in his gospel uses and adapts an idea that wasn't originated by quote-unquote Christians, it was originated by what we would maybe call pagans. The, reason, the, the very fact that John does that and claims this, this term logos and claims the concept and incorporates it into the very gospel that we hold to as inspired, infallible, perfect, whatever word you want to use, the very fact that John does this, doesn't this show us that this is true? Doesn't this show us that God has revealed facets of himself in other religions, in other worldviews, and other things that we might just say are, are meaning-making systems? I'm convinced that it has to be the case, but if you're not convinced yet, I'm not convinced by Justin Martyr's argument, that's just fine. Let me introduce you to some others. The second to third century church father Irenaeus certainly seemed to have agreed with Justin Martyr as well as Carcanian highlights, quote, Irenaeus not only found value in the Israelite religion, but also made room for salvific value in pre-biblical religions. And he did this by his idea of the revealing word, that would be with a capital W, the Logos. According to Irenaeus, through his word, the Logos, all learn that there is one sole God and Father who contains all things, who gives being to all things. The Son has not only made known the Father, but moreover, the Word was made the dispenser of his Father's grace for the benefit of the people, for whose sake he carried out such great divine plans, showing God to people. And he adds, this is um, Carcanian quoting Irenaeus again, Quote, for if that manifestation of God, which comes through the creation, gives life to all who live on the earth, how much more does the manifestation of the Father, which is performed by the Word, give life to those who see God? End quote. For Irenaeus, this line that we sometimes make between general revelation and special revelation, it just wasn't that clear to him. Creation itself, the entirety of it to Irenaeus, is a divine manifestation. And it was through the Logos that it was made. And it's through the Logos that creation is sustained. Unlike some modern caricatures of Revelation that might just seem to posit it as just informational, and thus we can like neatly separate between here's general revelation and the more spiritual special revelation, early Christian leaders didn't do this. They didn't make it that neat. Um, Irenaeus didn't see it as just, well, here's this category of revelation about God, and here's this category. It was a little bit messier. It overlapped and intertwined. It wasn't this neatly divided dichotomy. Clement of Alexandria was another great uh, example of this, an early church father who was in agreement with Justin and Irenaeus on this point. And he believed that, quote, those among the Greeks who have philosophized accurately see God, end quote. Uh, that makes me think of Isaac Newton's famous quote that, that mathematics is the language of God. And when we participate in the truth that we find in mathematics or in science, the beauty in art or poetry, this is what people like Clement, uh, Irenaeus, uh, Justin Martyr are trying to get at, that our participation, our glimpses into truth, goodness, beauty, and those, again, we might just say, you could say, hey, well, those are artificial categories. Yeah, but we have to come up with categories for these 
for these things, and you could expand it if you wanted to go beyond those three, even though that's, again, kind of the more classical tradition. When we see glimpses of that, what are we seeing? But glimpses of God's goodness, God's truth, God's beauty. There is no other source of it. Clement also wrote, quote, To the ones he, the Lord, gave the commandments, to the others philosophy, that the unbeliever may have no excuse. For by two different processes of advancement, both Greek and barbarian, he leads to perfection, which is by faith, end quote. Now, some might say, hey, you know, Clement, he, he only had Greek philosophy in mind when he was affirming the revelatory activity of the Logos outside of Old Testament Judaism or New Testament Christianity. But as Carcanian highlights in his book, this just isn't the case. Clement also includes Hindus, Buddhists, and other non-Greek philosophers among those who have received at least partial light of Christ in their religions. Okay, so what shifted and changed? This is largely very positive attitudes to the presence and activity of Christ in different meaning-making systems, in different worldviews, and even in different religious perspectives. What shifted? Okay, because you might go, hey, I, I haven't seen this sort of positive outlook on uh, people outside of the Christian tradition. Well, what changed? What changed to shift us from being very early on from the, the Christian community and Christian story, being more focused on this inclusive hope, um, and even at times universalist, though I'm not a universalist, uh, universalist hope like uh, Origen or Gregory of Nyssa. How do we get from this shift to the more ecclesiocentric exclusivism that many of us are familiar with? And why did this become the official position of the Catholic Church from the late 4th century until the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s? Well, it's no coincidence that this shift, the shift from this more positive, more open, more humble approach to Christ's activity in religions outside of the Christian story, why that positive attitude shifted around the fourth century. What happened in the fourth century? Well, in the fourth century, Christianity went from being a persecuted religion within the Roman Empire to being the official state religion of the empire under Constantine. There had long been, even among the first three centuries, there had long been this ecclesiocentric language employed by the church fathers. I, I don't want to deny that. Even uh, what we might say sounds pretty ecclesiocentric language among someone like Origen, who was a universalist. And that, that might seem odd, like especially from a guy like Origen. And it's like, that's, that's inconsistent. Why do they feel so strongly about the Christian story, about Christ, and about participation in Christian community in the church, and yet, like, still be open to the in more inclusive hope of Christ's redemptive work in the world. You have to understand that the more ecclesiocentric language that you see in the early church fathers, it wasn't aimed to be like, well, Stoics and Buddhists are out. That really strong language about having right faith, uh, right adherence 
to the, the story passed on by the apostles and the doctrine passed on by the apostles, that was aimed at those proclaiming to be Christian and yet reject, rejecting the authority of orthodox doctrine and the church. What we could say are the, the heretics and the schismatics, the splinter, heretical Christian groups like the Gnostics. You see the church fathers very, very strong in them, their condemnation of that. And this is actually where the mantra developed um, that's long been held, especially in the Catholic tradition of extra ecclesium nulla salus, or no salvation outside of the church. This slogan, this stance, was early on applied again towards the, the heretical groups, the Manichaeans, the, um, the Arians, the, those that were explicitly teaching a different version of Christ. Can you see how this actually works? These, these are not contradictory positions. You can hold simultaneously to the presence of Christ being at work in places, the world, and cultures, and even religious traditions that are using different language to maybe describe a similar thing, and those that are explicitly using your Christian language to describe something totally different than the truth. That's where this no salvation outside of the church doctrine begins. But by the fourth century, the phrase wasn't just applied to heretical groups, but was beginning to be applied to Jews and pagans. Why was that the case? I would contend that was the case because Constantinus and his successors perceived threats to the stability of the Roman Empire to be those that would not hold now to this state-sponsored religion. It's a very drastic shift. Sure, the no salvation outside of the church was still directed towards heretics, but if you use it as a tool of the empire, it could now be used to assimilate pagans, barbarians you conquer. Challenges to the authority of the Catholic Church were now challenges to the empire. And I, I'm not trying to make this point to say, well, you know, there's some sort of intentional conspiracy to eliminate inclusivist theology by the Roman Empire. Rather, I simply want to point out that it was in the interest, the self-preservation and interest for order and stability in the empire and for the Catholic Church, which, again, that was the only church <laughs> that was around until the, uh, to the split with, um, with the East and the split between Eastern Orthodoxy and the Roman Catholic Church. That, that was their means of maintaining stability and order throughout the empire to all the inhabitants of the Roman world and to bring them together under one religious authority. So what better way of doing this? What better way of keeping order and stability and making sure that everybody adheres to the same narrative than establishing that it be necessary for the salvation, the very salvation of your soul, for you to be a participant in the church, for salvation to be necessary through the vehicle of the Catholic Church. It's a very advantageous doctrine if you are trying to maintain, control, order, power, uh, spread your empire. And you might go, well, hey, Paul, I'm not a Roman Catholic, so... 
why does this apply to me? You know, you might even go, I'm not really wild about the Constantinian era of church and state and the unholy matrimony of the two. So why should I care? How did this influence Protestant theology? Okay, so it's during this period in the fourth century that Augustine um, is becomes the arguably the most important Christian writer in all of history. Augustine shapes Catholic and Protestant theology for the rest of history. If you go back to, again, our Problem of Evil series, when we're talking about Luther and Calvin, both of those guys were trying to recover what they thought was the true Christian faith. And really, for the most part, all they had access to from the at least relatively early stages of Christianity were Augustine. Augustine was like the, the forefather of Christian theology outside of the apostolic witness. So both of those guys go back and they refer to Augustine. Now, again, I think Augustine made a lot of really positive uh, contributions to theology, but in the area of soteriology, I think several of Augustine's positions did much more to magnify the sin of Adam's failure than to magnify the second Adam's atoning work. And I've got a problem with that. Like, for example, for Augustine, even unbaptized infants were destined to hell. Again, note that I said unbaptized infants, which means if you're an infant and you're baptized, well, you're in luck. Now, how does that work? Now, some of you, again, maybe grew up in more Baptist contexts and, you know, evangelical contexts that place a em- really strong emphasis on you have to make a decision for faith in Christ and you, you don't do let's say, infant baptism in your church. You go, all right, this is weird. Why would Augustine believe that? Why would Augustine believe that those babies that were baptized would suddenly be saved and not go and experience again? For Augustine, it's eternal conscious torment too as well, which is a difference from some other uh, theological predecessors to him. But why would Augustine think like baptism would make a difference? Because there is no salvation outside of the church. The vehicle for salvation, Augustine believes, is Christ mediated through the church. So the church has authority in the authority to, the, the sole authority to um, provide the sacraments and a salvific sacrament, a means of grace is baptism. So that authority is in the church. And I've got a problem with that. I also confess I have a problem with Augustine's belief that Quote, there are those to whom the gospel was not preached because God foreknew that they would not believe, end quote. I have a problem with Augustine's double predestination, and it's a double predestination that was actually condemned at the Second Council of Orange in 529, and it established this precedent where many Christians throughout history have accepted that, like, God just didn't provide every human with access to salvation. He just didn't. I know some of you might not have a problem with that. I do. I don't think it's the best way to read scripture. I think Augustine got this wrong. The height of this sort of ecclesiocentric exclusivism might have been in the 14th century. Pope Boniface VII wrote that, quote, for every human creature, it is a matter of strict necessity for salvation to be subject to the Roman pontiff, end quote. We get to a point in history where it is made very, very explicit that salvation is exclusively found in the church as a hierarchical institution. In particular, it's not just even in Christ alone, 
but it's via the Pope that salvation is distributed. Thankfully, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has since corrected that terrible, uh, terrible theology. I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, the Second Vatican Council was uh, very helpful in correcting what is clearly uh, not biblical. But even though we, when we get to the Protestant Reformation, we get to this point in which the Reformers are, are challenging that sort of authority, the authority of the institutional hierarchical church, that is certainly a challenge for the Reformers like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli. What they're trying to do is, again, return back to the source and they turn the church back. They're not against all institutions, certainly not. They're not against hierarchies. They're not against authority. That's not the case for Luther and Calvin. What they're trying to do as there's more people that has access to the source documents, the sort of revival of um, people studying original sources becomes a big thing, not just in the world of theology, but in other disciplines as well. Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, others, they're trying to call people back to the source documents, right? What source documents do they have available to them? Well, they don't have as much as what we actually have access to. Certainly, they have the Christian scriptures. There probably is some scant um, documentation of church fathers before Augustine, but certainly not the level of access that we have to now. So they're going back. They're doing what we're doing. They're going back to like the earliest sources that they have because they're saying, hey, we want to read the scriptures right. So how did the early church read the scriptures right? And Luther and Calvin, they go to Augustine. And if Augustine is saying there's no salvation outside of the church, Luther and Calvin feel like, hey, we're being pretty faithful here if we continue to affirm this Augustinian emphasis on things like the total depravity of every human being, the inherited guilt of Adam, you know, um, that there's no salvation outside of the church. And for both Luther and Calvin, they see there being a distinction between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation for someone like Luther just wasn't sufficient to lead one to salvation. Luther thought that the true glory of God was found in the foolishness of the cross and that no natural mind would be able to find him in such hiddenness. So for those of you that are in these more Protestant evangelical traditions influenced by Luther and Calvin, even if you don't think they are, this is where your um, train of thought comes from. Uh, Calvin, Calvin more directly drew upon the work of Augustine and, and emphasized at times, I know some Calvinists might disagree, but there are certainly instances in which it seems like Calvin was arguing for double predestination, just like Augustine. For Calvin, salvation was not accessible to all because God had just decided to not make it accessible to all. Christ's atoning work is only for those predestined elect who God has chosen to give his special revelation to. Those whom he has, he's chosen to reveal his son to are unable to resist his grace. God's glory is found in his condemnation of those whom he has not chosen to reveal himself to. If that's what you hold to, uh, I respectfully disagree, and that's okay. I mean, I'm in church community with people that have a diversity of viewpoints on this, and some lean more towards that, that Calvinist reading, 
And um, it's okay for us to be in a disagreement about this. I think there's obviously lots of you who find the implications of Calvin's theology to be unacceptable, um, especially in light of the seemingly universal proclamations of God's desire to save that we find in the scriptures. One thing that Calvin does do, though, however, is Calvin's framework, his theology of sovereignty and salvation, they are at least a consistent framework for settling questions on religious pluralism. Uh, That's an internally consistent theological doctrine. And for Calvin, God simply, because of his wisdom, it's because he's God, uh, he can simply decide to not provide all of humanity with access to salvation. And whatever his purposes are, we have to deem those as good. Again, you may disagree with that. The thing that I at least would say about it is that it is internally consistent. That gives you a framework for settling your questions on religious pluralism. For others of you that think God's disposition towards humanity is a um, is that salvation is God uh, Christ's work on the cross is universal in its scope. That uh, you might hold to something that you might call unlimited atonement. Uh, for those of you that that's the case. In some ways, the religious pluralism question actually becomes a little bit trickier. Okay, so what do we do as we serve? I mean, we could go through every single, I'm not going to do an entire two-year series again like I did for the problem of evil. We could go through every major theologian, you know, past and present and try to sift through. I, I'm not going to give the time uh, to that in this series. The intention of this series is to be a little bit shorter. Um, much shorter, I would say, so that we could uh, at least offer some different ways of reading the scripture, help you deal with maybe some of the questions that you have. But what do we do? What do we do when we look back at the history of the church? We look back on Christian theologians and philosophers of the past, and what do we make of the tradition of our past on the question of salvation and religious pluralism? As we can see, the early Christian leaders who lived just a few generations after the apostles and whose primary language was the Greek of the New Testament believed that the lines between general revelation and special revelation were blurry. All truth at all places and at all times is found in the Logos, the Christ, whether it be in Greek philosophy or in Buddhism. Christ has always been working within all of culture, including the culture's religions, to bring people into a knowledge of himself. The early fathers firmly believed that the narrative of the Bible pointed clearly to a God who desires the salvation of all people. And this God who desires the salvation of all people has made a way for all people to have access to his Son. Access to this, what we could call cosmic Christ or ontological Christ, isn't limited to just one path. However, those who claim to explicitly know and believe in Christ should not lead others astray from the truth about who he is. That's what made these early church fathers so upset with the heretical movements. The truth of what, who Jesus is revealed in the scriptures shouldn't be uh, intentionally obscured. And it is the job of the church to say, hey, 
this is not an accurate picture of who Jesus is. For those pursuing heresy, there was really strong language of warning and judgment. But as Christianity shifted from being a minority religious movement within the Roman Empire, where they're constantly having to act as one religious perspective among many different religion, religious perspectives, as that shifted to become making Christianity the official religion of the empire, that's where we see a shift on this greater emphasis for theological unity, theological unity that would be advantageous to political stability. No salvation outside the church was important as the Roman, old Roman paganism still wanted a seat at the table of power. Attitudes towards pagans and Jews became very hostile. For theologians like Augustine in the 4th century, the church had been brought to the whole world. People should be without excuse, right? Yet even for Augustine, throughout history, to those theologians like Aquinas and into the Reformers, this ecclesiocentric emphasis was more focused on dealing with heretics than with Taoists or Native American spiritualists. This unholy matrimony of church and state power coupled with the dogmatic ecclesiocentrism, I don't think that's been a good thing throughout history. Throughout history, that unholy matrimony has brought persecution, murder, and war to those who just don't accept the empire's official beliefs. Most notable examples of this throughout history include anti-Semitism, from Augustine to Luther, who both wrote terrible anti-Semitic treatises, the Crusades against the Muslims, with Jews once again often slaughtered along the way, the Spanish Inquisition, and Western missionary colonialism. Yet throughout all this time, leading up to the radical inclusivist shift of the Catholic Church in the Second Vatican Council, there have been voices reminding the Church of the inclusivist hope held by the early fathers. Some of these voices include the Cappadocian fathers and mother in the 4th century, Peter Abelard in the 12th century, Francis of Assisi in the 13th century, Nicholas of Cusa in the 15th century, Erasmus in the 15th, 16th century, Zwingli in the 15th and 16th century, Jacob Arminius in the 16th century, and John Wesley in the 18th century. By the 19th century, Post-Enlightenment liberalism was posing challenges to, to traditional Orthodox Christology, paving the way for the sort of unitive pluralism of people like John Hick. These sorts of challenges understandably caused reactionary affirmations of the ecclesi ecclesiocentric exclusivism from people seeking to really want to affirm historic traditions. They wanted to affirm biblical fidelity. They felt once again that there were these sorts of heretical movements in the church. So what do we do? We say no salvation outside of the church. But yet at the same time, as this advancement was happening, the advancement of technology, the world's becoming a smaller place, rapid globalization is happening, and it's bringing greater awareness of the global religions, the cultures of the world. And as this happened, as we get into the 20th century, serious questions start to reemerge about the fate of those who lived and died outside of Christendom. For the first time, a robust dialogue on the theology of religions 
was formally developing. As these dialogues have happened, there has been these sorts of competing debates, competing debates among people that would hold to that more no salvation outside of the church position. And then there have been others, again, like John Hick, who I've mentioned a few times, who held to the, hold to this more unitive pluralism, that all religions are essentially the same and they point to the same God. I don't think that's true either. I don't think all paths lead to salvation. I don't think all paths are the same. I don't think if you talk to people who are in um, minority religions, right, in places of the world where um, maybe the empires are still Christendom-like empires, if you ask them, do you think your religion is the same as the religion of this empire? They're going to tell you no. So I don't want to erode those differences. What I want to argue, though, is that the early way, the way that I think is the way that we see in the biblical narrative, the way held by Justin Martyr, the way held by Irenaeus Clement, the way held by John Wesley, and even later in his life, Billy Graham, this inclusivist hope that is based on Christ alone, to me, this is the answer I've been looking for. To me, this is the way forward into having authentic dialogue about our differences, about the genuine differences that do exist among different religious traditions without feeling we have to demonize the person maybe in a different culture, in a different religion. This gives us hope that salvation isn't all on our shoulders, that it's not simply all on the shoulders of foreign missionaries or evangelists to save the world. Now, we certainly have a role to play, and I want to talk about that role in a little bit, but this, this sets us free from feeling like we are actually the saviors of the world to trusting in a Christ who has come to save the world, who's already come to be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So let me break it down for everybody to kind of wrap this up. I want to break it down and help you see in, in summary, in conclusion, the, the case that I, I, I'm trying to make to all of you, the case of this, for this Christocentric inclusivist hope. I'm going to start by doing a couple of what we might call theological syllogisms here, all right? So syllogism works if A is true and B is true, then C is true, right? I believe the biblical narrative paints a picture that God desires all of humanity to know God. If that is the case, right, for all of humanity to know God, all of humanity must have access to God. Therefore, if A and B are true, if God desires all of humanity to know God, and for all of man, humanity to know God, which again, that is the definition of salvation, all humanity must have access to God. Therefore, God has given all of humanity access to know him. God has given all of humanity access to know God. God desires all of humanity to know God. And if all of humanity, in order to know God, all of humanity must have access to God. Therefore, God has given access. God has given all of humanity access to know God. If that is true, here's the second syllogism I'd lay out. God has given all of humanity access to know God, but not all of humanity has, have, has had cognitive, informational access to the Christian narrative of Jesus as proclaimed by the church. Therefore, cognitive, informational, maybe we say propositional access to the, narr the Christian narrative of Jesus proclaimed by the church is not necessary to know God. Salvation comes as a result of the knowledge of God by grace, through faith 
leading one into a real ontological union with God through Christ. I think it stands to reason that a God who expresses a universal desire for the salvation of all people would provide a means for all people to know him through faith. If this isn't the case, then perhaps God simply just doesn't desire all of humanity to know him. Some like Calvin may see this as, as being in the biblical evidence. I personally don't. Others might agree with that first premise listed above, but say that God's plan to accomplish this is only through the message of the church. They might say, yeah, we believe that God desires all of humanity to know God, but that the only way that that happens is through the message of the church. If that's the case, then the vast majority of the human race who has never heard the gospel or when they heard the Christian narrative of Jesus, it came on the edge of a sword or looking down the barrel of a gun. That means they never have truly had access to God. They never truly had genuine access to know God. And as a result, they've been damned by the failures of the church. And I've heard messages like this paired with this sort of like, well, if this is the case, then we need to increase evangelism and missions. But at what point would God banking the entire success of his redemptive plan on people's ability to go and faithfully present the gospel to all people ever start to call into question either one, the failure of the planner, or two, whether or not God even has such a desire. I have a really hard time with this. If the only way that people can have access to God is through the church, I mean, you might go and be like, well, that's why we got to step up our game. I don't know. (laughs) In the end, I go, well, is that really a good plan, (laughs) given the historical evidence that we have? Or maybe the second question becomes, I don't know if God really desires all to be saved. I don't think either one of those are the best options. There are those who might, like, agree with this, these sort of theological syllogisms, they weren't formal, formal, formal syllogisms for all of you out there who are really into Aristotelian logic, but those of you that might agree with those, but maybe believe that universalism presents the best solution, I, I hear you. Um, because God desires all to be saved and Christ died for all, then all will be saved. I think there are compelling philosophical and even theological reasons to believe in universalism. But universalism, to me, is lacking in its ability to reconcile this tension in Scripture between God's explicit desire for the salvation of all with this overwhelming evidence that not all will receive that salvation. You can look at all of these biblical parables, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, the parable of the unfaithful, unjust steward. You can look at Romans 2.5. 2 Peter 3, 7, Hebrews 10, 26 to 28, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. I, I, how do you reconcile those two? Universalists might agree with the two syllogisms, but kind of modify the conclusion that, uh, you know, proper epistemological cognition is necessary, but will be given to all those who didn't respond in this life somehow in some post-mortem state. I just don't see that to be the case. There is no biblical evidence for post-mortem repentance. Could it be possible? Maybe. Am I, like, rooting for it to not be the case? Certainly not. 
But I have to go with the revelation that's been given. This doesn't seem to be the case. I think there's pretty strong evidence that the freedom of our wills and our ability to respond is a, is a very real factor that has very real implications. I think Christocentric inclusivism is a better option than universalism because Christocentric inclusivism could leave room for, let's say, 99.999% of humanity to be saved and still acknowledge and still be able to make do with the biblical evidence that points to not all receiving this gift of salvation. Even if that total number of what we might say are unsaved peoples is a really small number, the percent of the unsaved could be much higher too. I acknowledge that. But the reason wouldn't be because they never had an opportunity to respond to the Logos in faith. Even as we consider our own experience of salvation, the question often comes up, well, how do I know if I'm saved? To answer this question, we look for evidence or fruit that demonstrates we have salvific union with Christ. We look for the fruits of the Spirit. Jesus even said, No tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. You can see that in Luke 6, 4.33. If we affirm that good fruit in our own lives is evidence of our salvation, then why are we so quick to dismiss the good fruit that we see in the life of an atheist, a Muslim, a Jew, a Hindu, a Buddhist? All of that good fruit comes from Christ. I think we can positively affirm that in people. It, is, it was certainly affirmed in the case of Rahab and Cornelius. So if that's the case, can we also positively affirm it in our friends, our neighbors, and foreigners in far-off lands who practice different religions? The question is, can bad trees really bear good fruit? If Jesus said no, I'm tempted. <laughs> I'm tempted to believe Jesus. To say that love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, those fruits of the Spirit, to say that those things are evidence of salvation is not to confuse good works as the causal determinants of salvation. This isn't to say that we are saved by works. It's to say what James says is that, that, that works are the byproduct of faith. They are not what determines our salvation, but they're evidence of our salvific union in Christ. Christ is the cause of all salvation, by which people become participants in, through this mystery of faith, regardless of the language they use to describe what is ontologically true. Acts 2.17 tells us Christ has poured out his spirit on all flesh, but not all willingly receive his spirit. Men and women all over the world, even though the Spirit's been poured out, are actually free to resist. That's what we see in Acts 7, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 51. Those who persist in resisting the Spirit's beck and call to come and drink from the living waters of Christ, the author of life, they produce bad fruit that leads to death. Christ's victory over death in the resurrection is the promise that creation is being made new in him. 
all that will refuse to be made new, all that resists the restoration of all things, all that resists the spirit which brings and bears good fruit in the world, they will be consumed in this fire of his love. It's, and it's for the sake of the poor, it's for the sake of the oppressed, that God will not continue to allow oppression, sin, and death forever. He won't continue to allow this resisting, this moving away from what's good. And it's for the sake of the poor. It's in his mercy and kindness and love. It's for the sake of his creation that he brings a final judgment to those things. All that are not found in him who, quote, sustains all things by his powerful word, that's in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, will no longer be sustained and will meet that final judgment of eternal destruction. If this is correct, if what I'm proposing to you, this Christocentric inclusivism, if that's the best way to think about salvation, what then is the responsibility of a Christian to those in other religions? What does Christocentric inclusivism mean for evangelism, missions, for discipleship? What is our responsibility to those who are actually in other religious traditions? Here's what I think it is. In all humility and in gentleness and meekness, we announce the good news of Jesus Christ. But in doing that, I think our mode of engagement possibly changes. And one thing that we can do is we can seek to find points of affirmation where people may already be enlightened by the light of Christ. Remember, there is no truth, beauty, or goodness that doesn't come from Christ. He is the light of the world, John 8, 12. Where there is sin and darkness, where there's oppressive ideologies, oppressive practices, which lead men and women into harming themselves, like, for example, the, I think about the prophets of Baal who were cutting themselves on Mount Carmel, or harming others, like, for example, the offering of child sacrifices to Molech. Those are great instances in which the light of Christ sets people free from self-harm, from harming other people. So in those contexts, in those situations, we have the opportunity to bring a clarion call to repent. Where there is truth, beauty, and goodness, we can rejoice. We can find points of affirmation. Listen, if to us as Christians, to we Christians, if Jesus Christ is the apex of our values, if Jesus Christ is the source of all of our ethics, what we understand to be right and wrong in the world, how we're supposed to live, if he is, again, it's like the author of Hebrews says uh, in chapter one of Hebrews, that the, the son is the the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, we believe that to be true. And it might feel like, well, Paul, by going around and telling people that, or are we being colonial? Are we not being respectful to people's religions? And I think we can do this honestly and with humility because the reality is everybody already has some idea, some value, um, some picture in their mind that functionally acts as Christ in their life anyways. So 
When we think about what's right and wrong, we consult some source that's external to us. It's not just in ourselves. Some people might think that it is, <laughs> but we always consult some external source when we, we're trying to understand what's right and wrong, what's true and false. We are looking for a standard. We're looking for something that we could point to and say, this is the truth. And all we say as Christians is that truth has a name. Truth has a, a way of being, and it is Jesus Christ. But again, everybody points to some sort of standard when they're trying to determine what's true, what the right way to live is in the world, uh, sifting through what's true and what's false. You know, we do this in all sorts of disciplines, whether we're employing the uses of our, our faculties of reason, whether we're doing uh, empirical experimentation. There is an exclusivity in truth claims. That is, that's unavoidable, all right? Um, to say two plus two equals four is to say that two plus two doesn't equal five, that it doesn't equal one, that it doesn't equal squirrel, that it doesn't equal tree. You know, that that claim, as simple as it is, uh, it is... It is exclusive in a sense. The nature of truth is exclusive. But the hope that I'm trying to present is that the if we take this simple, it's a very, very much an oversimplification though. If we take this analogy of thinking about truth, it just even in the mathematical sense, if I have two apples and you give me two more apples, I have four apples. That's true. We can verify that empirically. We can verify it rationally. But it's also fine if in some sense I uh, do this math, this uh, story problem in some other cultural context where uh, they name the numbers differently, where they uh, use different words to describe in a different language to describe what an apple is. I call it an apple. Uh, I'm not multilingual. I don't. I took years of French, and gosh, I can't even remember in French what apple is. Uh, don't know any Spanish at all. But if I'm in those cultural contexts, they're going to name it something different. That that doesn't mean that they can say, well, two of this or whatever word they want to use to describe it equals something different than what it objectively is. So they can't say it's two of this and two of this, and now it equals seven. That just can't be the case. So again, it's not that all paths, all perceptions of reality are equally valid. That's, that's not the case. Instead, though, what I'm asking us to do is to consider, consider the possibility that it might be harder work to just uh, work through, like, hey, what does this mean in your language? And to try to figure out, are we describing a similar thing even though we use different language? Simultaneously, we often find that people using maybe the same language are describing something different. So what if I'm talking to someone who is uh, from, let's say, Westboro Baptist, you know, the infamous Infamous church known for its like hyper culture war activism, picketing the funerals of soldiers, marching around with some pretty, pretty incendiary, um, you know, placards and signs. And they have a very different concept of Jesus than I do. So when we both talk about Jesus, are we talking about the same ontological Christ? 
I'm not sure that we are, <laughs> okay? I'm not sure that we are. So this is part of what we have to work through with language and culture. Because what one person might say is like, hey, I got four apples here and I compare what I've got in my hands to someone, let's say, and I don't want to just pick on this place, but it's, it is an easy illustration, some, someone at Westboro Baptist and they go, hey, I got four apples too. And you look in the, their hands and it's like, I don't know if those are apples. Those look like snakes to me. <laughs> you know, you might be naming it that, but I don't think that is what you believe it is. There's there's hard work there. There's hard work with the use of our language where it's just not as easy as going, well, everybody that names this experience, this set of values as Jesus is actually describing Jesus as he is, as he's been revealed to us in the scriptures. And similarly, as we interact with people who are in different religions and different cultural contexts, we might find that there is some commonality. And what we're coming up against, there might be differences in language. Now, I believe in faith that Jesus of Nazareth, the real Jesus of history, the Jesus that the scriptures bear witness to, is the apex of all of our values. He is the apex of all truth, goodness, and beauty. He's the source of it all. I believe in the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ, but I do that in humility. I do that humbly. I do that not as a conqueror, but someone that I, as someone that I hope is a disciple of Jesus. Uh, and, and Jesus said that the way of his way was not the way of the Gentiles, where we lord it over people and we try to be rulers and we'd go with this power over approach. Instead, if you wanted to follow him, what did Jesus tell his disciples? You have to become a servant. You have to lay down your life. You have to act as he does as a ransom for all. So our mode of engagement is in humility. The way that I demonstrate the lordship of Jesus is by blessing those in other religious contexts. It's by serving them. It's by bearing witness to Christ. And in the context of friendship and in the context of community and honest communication, we can both say to each other, here is where I, uh, this is what I believe is the apex. This is the source. This is the standard outside of myself. And I believe that it's Jesus, of Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus of history and the Jesus of the Christian scriptures. And I can do that honestly and in humility. And if I'm right, and then I also, then I can also trust and believe that Christ is at work in whatever cultural context that person grew up in, even their religious context, that Christ was at work in that. And so what I get to do is I get to come alongside of that and demonstrate how Christ is the fulfillment of their highest aspirations and aims, that Christ is the fulfillment of whatever partial truth, whatever partial glimpse at goodness, whatever partial glimpse at beauty their particular religious tradition has um, in part participated with. And And I can come along and say, hey, I want to offer to you what I do believe is the fulfillment of what all of your aspirations are looking for. There's this really, really great book. It's called The Crown of Hinduism, and it was written by an Indian missionary at the turn of the 20th century named J.N. Farquhar. Farquhar's missionary work in the Indian subcontinent led him to believe that Christ was the fulfillment of the, quote, highest aspirations and aims of Hinduism, end quote. 
And I just love what Farquhar wrote about his experiences with the Hindu religion during his missionary work in India. He wrote this in that book, The Crown of Hinduism, quote, Every line of light which is visible in the grossest part of the religion reappears in him set in healthy institutions and spiritual worship. Every true motive which in Hinduism has found expression in unclean, debasing, or unhealthy practices finds in him fullest exercise in work for the downtrodden, the ignorant, the sick, and the sinful. In him is focused every ray of light that shines in Hinduism. He is the crown of the faith of India. End quote. I love that. I love that because it acknowledges that the light of Christ is at work in Hinduism. I think the light of Christ is at work in Buddhism, in Islam, in uh, Taoism, you name it. Uh, the light of Christ has been at work in the people practicing those religious traditions. There are people, guys, you, I mean, you really think that there are these people that are earnestly, honestly searching for the truth, that, that God isn't like eager to have them discover him? I mean, this again gets to like, what is our picture of God? You know, so that, that Native American who lived here in the, the medieval period or b before that, long before um, European coloners and co colonizers or colonists and settlers came to this continent and, and brought the, the Christian religion, you don't think that there were some Native American um, people who lived here that were like, gosh, I really want to know in their own language, in their own tongue. I want to know the truth. I want to figure out what this is all about. I want to know this creator. I want to know this creator who made all of this. And, and then God's like, ah, sorry, I got no light for you. You're going to have to wait till European colonists arrive on this continent. It's like, really? Do we really believe this about God? Do we really believe that for whether it's Native Americans here, American Indians here, or Indians on the continent of India, the subcontinent of the Indian Peninsula? Farquhar saw that there was just too much to celebrate in Hinduism as illuminating Christ, but this didn't keep him from pointing out elements in Hindu thought and culture that he believed to be oppressive and not found in Christ. I know in our Problem of Evil series, we concluded by looking at a piece of fiction, a piece of fantasy literature written by J.R.R. Tolkien from the Cimmerillion. And uh, maybe in keeping with that tradition, we're going to conclude this series with Tolkien's good friend, the fellow inkling, C.S. Lewis, and a beautiful representation of the inclusivist hope that's actually found in the Narnia series. It was actually in the last battle, so if you've gone through the Narniad, the Narnia series, and you've read the last battle, uh, C.S. Lewis put in, snuck in some <laughs> inclusivist hope in that work. Maybe you missed it, um, but let me set the stage for you, set the scene in this book. In the book, there's this pagan character named Emeth, and Emeth has served the evil Tash his whole life. But at the end of the story, as Aslan is victorious, he lays himself down at the feet of Aslan, and he's, he's even afraid to ask for mercy. He knows that he has given his whole life to serving Tash. 
And he just, he's so scared to even beg for mercy at the feet of Aslan. Aslan, though, is much more merciful and gracious than what Emeth can even imagine. Aslan gives this wonderfully merciful response to Emeth that was beyond Emeth's comprehension. When Aslan says, quote, All service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me, end quote. When Emeth questioned whether that meant Tash and Aslan were one and the same, or whether or not maybe we could say that they were ontologically the same, Aslan fiercely dismissed the notion with a mighty roar. No, Aslan and Tash were opposites, but so opposite that no good deed or act of service done in the name of Tash could possibly even belong to Tash. All good was Aslan's good, and all evil was Tash's evil. Even when one keeps an oath they swear by in Tash's name, Aslan credits the oath they keep as being in his name, even though they're not aware of it. At the same time, all evil done in Aslan's name is actually the work of Tash. Emeth was still taken aback by this pronouncement. Here at this point, C.S. Lewis pens a beautiful end to Emeth and Aslan's dialogue. As Emeth exclaims, quote, Yet I have been seeking Tash all my days. To which Aslan replies, Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. End quote. Will all who genuinely seek the Lord find him? even if they do not fully know who they seek? Can what is epistemologically Tash be ontologically Aslan? The scriptures, the witness of the church fathers, our reason and our own experience with those of different religions who bear fruit in keeping with repentance, all affirm in the positive. In the end, we can trust that the judge of the earth will do what is right. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed this series, found it helpful, maybe challenging, thought-provoking. If you have questions, if you have objections, if you want to give me any feedback, the best way to do that is in the discussion forum on Patreon, in the Deep Talks Patreon community uh, that we have for this episode. We do a discussion forum in every episode where people can, from around the world, chime in. They can share their thoughts. They can share their perspectives. They can talk back and forth with me, talk back and forth with other listeners and supporters on Patreon. It's a really good, productive place for some uh, online discussion to happen. I think it's a better forum than just doing it on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, sometimes, you know, there's just, uh, there can be a bit of snark. <laughs> there can be a bit of the typical angry diatribes that happen in those mediums. So um, this is a little bit fo more focused place where you're going to find people that at least in some way, shape or form have a similar disposition, um, at least similar enough to me where they are listening to this podcast. And I guess they don't really like angry polemics either. So uh, if you want to chime in there, it's a great place to get connected. Um, that's also the place where you can support this podcast and make sure that I can keep doing it ad free. 
we just hit one third of the first uh, tier uh, or first layer, first level. That's probably the best word for uh, my goals for this podcast, which would be to get to 300 supporters on Patreon. And then when I get to that point, we can do weekly episodes. Uh, I can branch out and actually do a lot more of the uh, Zoom discussion groups, which have been just such a blast the last few months. So maybe that's something you're interested in doing as well. Each month we have a Zoom discussion group and it's available for all those who are supporting at that Theology 201 level or higher. There's also other tiered rewards, like if you wanted to just do like a monthly one-on-one Zoom call together um, where we can hash out, work through whatever theological issue, philosophical, or even if just like, hey, spiritual counsel, prayer, uh, I'm glad to do that. So again, you can find a link for all of this in the description of this podcast below. You can also connect with me on Twitter, on Instagram. I usually leave a link to uh, where you can find me on Twitter. Uh, And finally, my one last request is if you're finding this podcast to be helpful, that you can support it not just by becoming a supporter on Patreon, but you can just leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people discover it. Um, The more ratings and more reviews, the more likely the algorithms uh, so present this podcast to someone else who may be searching for it. And that's really helpful. If you found this podcast to be helpful, probably someone else might too. So thanks for considering doing that. Again, I look forward to hearing your feedback and uh, having you reach out to me with any questions, objections, concerns you had about the stuff presented in this series. I'd love to hear all of it. And finally, I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Anders, Jesse, BJ, Carolyn S, Carolyn R, Eli, Hannah, Dr. Jim, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, and Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.